0: Welcome uh, to Hiawatha. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastors here. If uh, you are visiting, special welcome to you guys. And as we always say, we're glad you are uh, with us for one of our gatherings. So thanks for being here. Um, and we are, I think, as uh, Peter was saying, we're in a book study right now called Galatians, or in in the book of Galatians right now, a sermon series. So if you want to turn there in your Bibles or phone apps, that'd be great. Uh, I'll get to a little bit of a recap here um, momentarily. But Galatians is in the back, kind of third of your Bible, at the uh, kind of middle of the New Testament, uh, towards the end. So uh, take a minute to just look for that if you're, uh, if you're new in the few Bibles in front of you, or again, on any apps you have. Um, context will be uh, helpful for, uh, for today. Uh, but today we're going to be in Galatians 5, 1 to 15. So if you want to turn there and have that in front of you, that'd be great. Uh, Galatians is one of the 27 New Testament books, and it's one of the ones written by the Apostle Paul, one of the 13. A real man who really lived, who was a sinner just like us. He was actually a guy who murdered and imprisoned Christians that Jesus saved and then called to be an apostle or a sent one, uh, a pastor, uh, one who was kind of a church-planting missionary. and He started a lot of churches uh, in and throughout the region, the Roman Empire of the day. Uh, Galatia is a region, a Roman province, or a region north of other provinces like Galilee or Judea where Jesus uh, ministered, grew up and ministered and spent his three years kind of post-baptism right up until his death and then died in Judea, so respectively, but north of that. So I think modern-day Turkey, if... Um, uh, if you know where that is, kind of uh, eastern side of the Mediterranean. It's a region, though, and so there's many churches there that Paul helped to start. He probably started a couple of them that then multiplied a little bit in the year that it has now transpired between him being there and preaching the gospel and seeing people saved and starting churches there, and now he's elsewhere hearing about things going on in that church. And this is a common thing, if you're new to the Bible, there's occasion to all of the letters, that they're historical letters, they really occurred, and so there's occasion to them. A lot of time Paul makes this clear he says, you wrote about this, and now I'm writing back to you about these things. or well, I've heard this is happening in your context, and he addresses these very things. And so some letters are a little less clear. They're more general in their kind of scope, and their slant on things, and some are a bit more specific. The, the occasion here is that there's false teaching. So this is a, a also a big theme in the Bible. If you know a little bit about the New Testament, you know that Paul and others address this issue. The Bible knows nothing about kind of uh, relative truth. It can't mean whatever we want it to mean. The gospel, there's only one gospel. There's not many gospels. The gospel can't just mean whatever we want it to mean. Uh, it's very focused and honed in on one particular person, Jesus Christ. And not just his life even. It's, it's a specific, uh, the scope of his work. Even as we read the gospel accounts, Jesus makes it clear he's headed to Jerusalem to die. His eyes are fixed on Jerusalem. He could have stayed in Galilee. He could have lived there and and faced a little bit less persecution, but he goes to the center of persecution where he knows he'll be rejected, he knows he'll be killed. That was his mission. And so when when the Bible talks about these things, the gospel, it's very honed in and and, and it's very fixed on Jesus Christ and him crucified and raised. And so there's a lot of false teaching, though, that circulates around these things. Not clearly uh, debating them and, and coming against them, but in a little more of a a tricky way a tricky manner and that and that false teaching that adds to it so things that say that Jesus's blood is the starting point but not the continuation point so so additions onto the cross rather than flat- out denials of uh, who he was who Jesus was and what he did and and maybe who we are as sinners and how much we need Jesus's work for us to be saved and so Paul's hearing about this false teaching infiltrating the churches and he's He's not surprised that it's there, remember, because there will always be false teaching out there, but he's surprised that the Galatian Christians are so quick to receive it and uh, entertain it and in some cases just flat out believe it and apply it to their lives. And so Paul's been arguing tirelessly, biblically, for grace alone, God's grace alone, our faith in that grace alone, our trust in God's grace alone, and Christ alone. All those things alone every day and even now as Christians our good works being like a gift so that we can't say that we stay saved by being good. Good works are part of the Christian life but they're given to us by Jesus as we're filled with his Holy Spirit so we can't boast in them and we can't say that they're additions themselves onto the gospel. They're a piece of what Christ has to give us when he remakes us, when he dies for us and raises us from the dead and remakes us, makes us new, makes us in his image, all these things the Bible talks about good works are, are given as well and not something that originate within us. And so what he's been saying then is we stay saved, we stay in relationship with God, we stay connected with him by believing the gospel every day, by believing the good news every day. We need resurrection then more than moralism. Requiring different forms of asceticism, rigorous law-keeping and rule-following, even as Christians, is distinctly non christian it adds to grace, and when you add to grace, he's been saying, and we'll see today as well, when you add to grace, it ceases to become grace. When you add to grace, it actually destroys it. And so in this section uh, today, you'll, you'll see this in a little bit. I'll read uh, today's passage here uh, momentarily. You've seen this probably in the last couple of weeks if you've been here or if you've just read Galatians before in your life, but uh, Paul has been getting a little feisty these last couple of sections. And you might be thinking, has he been feisty the whole letter? And you're right, he kind of has been feisty the whole letter. But he's been especially feisty with his language uh, here, a little bit sarcastic, even in how he talks to these people, these Christians who, in one sense, should know better. Uh, But they're, they're backing away from Christ for the sake of their amazingness, for the sake of their works, for the sake of good things, not bad things, good things. It is very, very possible to replace Jesus with goodness. That's very complicated. That should make us stumble a bit, make us scratch our head. Uh, the, the Bible uh, twists this diamond in the light from almost every vantage point you can imagine and, and asks questions about that, logical ones. We'll actually look at one today, logical ones that kind of come at it and say, well, isn't goodness good? Isn't God for the good? And the answer is absolutely. Well, then, so what's the place of good works in the Christian life if it's not about law at all anymore? And so uh, and Paul, will, Paul will talk about this. But Paul's been feisty, he's been sarcastic, he's been a little bit angry. This is the angriest we actually ever see him in any of his letters against the false teachers and against the false teaching. And so one thing I want to encourage you guys with before I read today, uh, maybe you already have in this series, uh, but this is a lesson thing for like your whole life, reading from Paul, but, uh, but with today in mind, is learn from Paul's angst and anger. Learn from it. If you feel a dissonance between Paul's anger and where you're at with your righteous anger you know, over false teaching or over impurity theologically in the church, ask yourself why that is. Why maybe are you a little more apathetic or careless? Uh, The point here isn't to copy Paul in everything that he says necessarily, but still learn from the principle. This guy cares deeply about the purity of the church theologically. Deeply. It keeps him up all night. He, he, he sweats over it. He, he's faced persecution over it. He's bled over it. He has anger over these false teachers that are coming in and defaming Jesus Christ. And in a way that's very subtle and sneaky. So that even like staunch Christians, he says in chapter 2, even Barnabas, even staunch leader type Christians are being led astray by the hypocrisy and by the false teaching of these, these certain Judaizers, they're called, or wolves, or false teachers, or poser Christians who are coming in looking like Christians but actually aren't because they're adding to, adding to Christ, saying he's just not quite enough. And so if you feel that dissonance, ask yourself why. I'm just going to kind of let that hang out there and not give easy answers to that because there aren't. The point, again, isn't to copy him perfectly but just to ask. There is, there is, and, and to assert, there's a place for righteous anger. There's a place to get angry. Jesus did. Jesus flipped tables over religion. He flipped tables over evil. He cracked whips. There's a place to have that kind of fire within us. And in this case, Paul's angry over teaching that is 10 degrees off. It's not a 180. It's like it, it affirms a lot about Jesus that he would affirm, but it's a 10-degree shift. Not a 180, a 10-degree shift. He's this, he has this type of anger. And I think it can be an example for us, too, that we could care, for leaders in the room especially, those of you who are leaders, but all of us as Christians, to have this kind of care, this kind of love that ends up looking like anger, kind of like a, a, a jealousy in a good way for people that Paul cares about here in a fatherly and pastoral pastoral manner. So with that said, let's read uh, Galatians 5, 1 to, it's actually 15, that's a wrong, I just realized that, that's a wrong verse, so don't go by that. It's uh, all the way through 15 today, read it in full here to, to begin. Galatians 5, 1 to 15. for through the spirit by faith we ourselves eagerly await for the hope wait for the hope of righteousness for in christ jesus neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything but only faith working through love you are running well who hindered you from obeying the truth this persuasion is not from him who calls you a little leaven leavens the whole lump i have confidence in the lord that you will take no other view And the one who is troubling you will bear the penalty, whoever he is. But if I, brothers, still preach circumcision, why am I still being persecuted? In that case, the offense of the cross has been removed. I wish those who unsettle you would emasculate themselves. For you were called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. But through love, serve one another the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. All right, so a little bit more to begin here on the theological issue itself. And and my plan for today is to talk more about it, the the issue, what's going on here. And he he continues to spin it uh, in a certain way around Christ and around the gospel itself and to argue for it. But then we'll look at the particular exhortation here that he gives as well. He wants freedom. So I'll just kind of say where I'm going. We'll talk about freedom. It's for freedom that Christ has set you free. It's for the sake of freedom that Jesus has freed us. This old way of thinking religiously. From being enslaved to, to fear, as a song said, enslaved to our sin, but here enslaved underneath law or a conditional way of thinking about our relationship with God and how we approach him exhortation is to be free, but then don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin. Don't use your freedom as an escape or as a have your have your way and, and then you know just kind of go and abuse it licentiously. We can't mock God or, or twist grace to kind of appease ourselves in a flesh kind of ways he talks about, but rather use your freedom as an opportunity to love other people. This is actually a if you're new to the new to the faith or if you're not a Christian yet, this is a very good passage on the essence of Christianity. What counts now for the Christian? What counts? Only faith working through love. That's it. What counts towards, uh, for the Christian? What are we to do with our time? Believe the gospel and use the freedom that we have in it. It's not about doing anymore. To love others. And so we'll look at that, the the big why behind this here in in just a a few minutes. That's basically what we're going to do today. So first, more on the theological issue itself. Uh, A couple pieces here. I'm just going to pull out a couple things. We could talk all day about this. But a couple things that are a little bit new uh, linguistically. So ways he's kind of shaping the argument that are a little bit new. We'll focus there because uh, we've talked about some other things already. Uh, But in any case, he starts by saying, If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. That last clause is really helpful, and don't look over that. The inverse of that means that Christ himself, in his person and work, is advantageous to us. Jesus advantages us. He benefits us, see? He's not saying, this is the way to live that will advantage you, over here, like a guru. He himself is advantageous. So with him, we can approach God. With him, we can have never sins wiped clean. With him we have the hope for eternal life because he himself overcame death too. But the way he frames it here is kind of the inverse of that again. He says, if you accept the law, though, or in this case circumcision, so one of the particular laws that were being pushed by Jewish Christians in the day in Galatia was that Gentile Christians, uncircumcised, physically uncircumcised men who are Christians, have to be circumcised in the same way that Israelites were in the Old Testament to be marked as a person of God. And there's a lot to say about that here we won't have time for today, but basically they're missing the trajectory from old to new, from physical to spiritual, from being physically marked as a person of God to now being spiritually marked as a person of God. But it's broader than that. It's not just like a a slight misreading of a theme in the Bible because look at what he says. He says secondarily here, everyone who accepts circumcision is obligated to keep the whole law. It's not just about circumcision. It's about that be kind of an entry law into this idea of what are we trusting in? What's our spirituality looking like every day? And so it's not just about this one thing, but about the whole of it, including the moral law. And a big part of Paul's argument's been, if you've been here, you've heard this before, a big part of his argument's been that the moral law is a burden. It's like a slave master. It's not a good thing over us. So the laws themselves are good, The way it treats us is not. And we can't get to God through doing good. That's the whole reason why they were added in the first place. God wasn't screwing up. He didn't make a mistake by adding the law. He added it to tell a wonderful story, to give a contrast to Jesus. So we want Jesus all the more and see our need for him all the more. But it's not just about circumcision. We also see this in the book of Acts, actually, in the councils, if you were here for that a few weeks ago how the Jewish Christians, other Jewish Christians who are thinking more rightly about these things, met to talk about what Old Testament laws continue into the New Testament era, and they basically say nothing. They write to these Gentile Christians and say, well, abstain from sexual sin. That's a rampant thing in your culture. Uh, God God has claimed your bodies now. He's died for you. He's raised you from the dead. You are his now. You're not your own. So be careful in that area, and then love other Christians who are different from you. I said, basically... Through this whole thing, like all of all the Old Testament laws, they skip all the way over the Ten Commandments, they skip over all the other moral laws, all the food kosher laws, all the Sabbath laws, all the other kinds of civil laws that kind of governed life for Israel in the Old Testament. Said, what are we gonna what are we gonna give these Gentile Christians who are being burdened with this kind of false teaching because they're writing us, we're hearing this is happening, they officially write back, kind of stamped with like this apostolic seal. This is the official decision. From the apostles, Jesus' disciples, who knew him face to face, Jewish Christians. The only thing we're asking really is that you believe the gospel, that you abstain from sexual sin, and that you love. That's it. And so a big part of the argument here is seeing circumcision then again is that entry law into thinking more about the whole of it, including the moral law. So it's more about accepting things. Like he says here, if you accept circumcision... This is about accepting things other than Jesus as many saviors. Anything, even and maybe especially good things. And so now we, we could actually read this differently and say, and change out circumcision for law to say, if you accept the law, Christ will be of no advantage to you. When Paul, the Bi- in, in, in the Bible just more broadly, but when Paul talks this way, note how separated law and Christ are. Is, there, there's no overlap whatsoever or blend. If it's the one, then it's no to the other. There, there's no blend. If you accept one law, then you're obligated to keep all of it, and then Christ is no advantage to you anymore. So you see how different they are? Like it's, Christ came to be a, a different way, not to be like an, added on like an appendage onto the old way, but to be a completely different, different way. Look at verse 9. It says, a little leaven leavens the whole lump which is to say a little reliance on works pollutes grace. Now, goodness itself doesn't pollute the gospel, obviously, because God is for the good, but reliance on and the requiring of works or rule-following or asceticism, like I talked about before, pollute the gospel message. Making Christianity more about a social cause or a spiritual discipline or a conditional command of any kind pollutes the cross. If we make those things about about the gospel or about Christianity more than than we would make Jesus about the center. It changes the center because the cross is about God's work, not ours. It's not the cross an example to follow. It's the power of God for salvation to all who believe. When God is dying on that, when he sends his son to die on that cross, the the call is believe and cast yourself on me. It's It's not do what I do. You know, there's no, like, oops there. God didn't screw up. He's not a martyr. He's intending this to occur. He goes there to die. And so ultimately, God says to us, believe and not do. Have faith and abandon your, uh, your works and your efforts at climbing to me. For I had to come down from heaven. That's how much I loved you. But also, when we see that message, we see how incapable we were as well. If God had to come here, what's that imply about us? We couldn't get up to him, and so a little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little bit of works, and the whole thing gets thrown out. A little bit of reliance on anything but grace just pollutes the whole thing, according to verse nine here. A little law-based understanding of salvation, and our daily lives as Christians taints, taints the whole faith. So everything's at stake. Everything. This is we, we've been saying this throughout the. The past couple of months here, if you guys have been here for this, it is repetitive. Paul cares, but everything's at stake. This is partly why he's beating this drum. The core of the issue really here is who or what are we trusting in, right? It's not just a principle. It's who or what are we trusting in, and when we add to Christ, we start to trust in him less. We don't need him for as much. It becomes more a little bit more about us and what we're able to give him. So what strikes at the heart of Christianity is that question. Who or what, who or what are we trusting in? It's, it's why he's actually uh, here in verse 12 when he says, you know, I, I wish those who unsettle you uh, that they would emasculate themselves. I mean, basically what he wants here is for these false teachers who are pro-circumcision and pro-law to slip with the knife and cut their own testicles off. That's what he wants. Like, really? You know? Now, what do you do with that, right? Is that misplaced anger uh, or not? Is there a principle there? And and like we said before, that's just a question I think we need to ask. Why is he so angry? Not to copy that. I don't think he's actually wanting that to happen. But he's angry. Why is he so angry? Why is half the New Testament written by this guy who wanted people to slip and cut their testicles off? Do you guys know that most of your Bible is written by this guy right here? So, is that interesting? Why is he so angry? I mean, nothing really makes sense unless, unless the core of the Christian message, unless people are being led away from Jesus to hell. You know, unless the whole thing's being thrown out. This isn't just. Yeah, that church emphasizes that minor doctrine a little bit differently. Yeah, they baptize that way and they baptize that way. And, you know, they have, they have hour and a half services and they have 45-minute services. And that's not what this is about. This is the whole thing. It's either all Jesus or it's nothing Jesus. You, you can't, we, we uh, people said before, we worship him or we crucify him. You know, he, he's not a buddy, right? I mean, he's everything or, or nothing. He's not, he's not a teacher, so everything's at stake. He, he, he wants the Galatians to know salvation is not self-harm. Salvation is not self-harm. It's Jesus was harmed for us. It's impossible to have both. Which is it? Is it your ascetic self-harm or Jesus' sufferings? Your fasting or his holy fast on that cross? Your good works or his perfect single act of obedience to his Father 2,000 years ago. Hebrews makes a good argument for this in chapter 10, if you want to read that in context. It's his obedience unto Father, not our obedience to God. It's Christ's obedience when God said, go to the cross and die for my, my creation, my creatures, my church. It's his act of obedience that replaces the Old Testament law. It's not a newfound ability for ourselves to keep it. We've moved from that. to just being connected with God alone through Jesus and what he has to do for us. Hebrews 10. So then, with all of that kind of recap mentioned, basically what he wants then is the church to believe this, but from the angle of freedom. So in verse 1, Stand firm, therefore, because Christ has set us free. And for the sake of freedom, he's done it. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm in the gospel, then do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Freedom from what? An exhausting endeavor to please God with our good works. And freedom from the law itself. And its demands, which could never save, which meant that we could never save ourselves. And and here's how important it is to God, by the way. Christ wants this for you right now. You see how it's written? It's for freedom christ himself he's done the freeing right christ has set us free for the sake of freedom so when you guys think about what the will of god is you ever wondered that what does god want for my day what does he want me to think about what does he want me to do with my life there's many ways you can answer that but it better include this because this is biblical this is god's word he wants you and me to be free he wants us to know these things He doesn't want us to be under the law anymore because that's what the freedom's from. From our sin that the law made more visible. He wants freedom from all of that as we just link ourselves simply by faith to Jesus Christ. That's freedom. No more conditions, no more rules, no more conditional expectations, but rather God coming all the way to us rather than holding something out to say, get to him. This is what God wants. This is his will for our lives today. He wants wants us to think more about Jesus than the law, more about his blood than to-do lists, more about God as father than God as boss, more about God's love than cold, godless moralism, more about, like in verse 5, waiting than working. That's one that's hard for me, but I don't know if it is for you guys or not, but I'm not a really good waiter. I'm very impatient. One of the big marks of being a Christian is waiting. But do you see how that's a gospel idea? God's not waiting for you. We talk this way sometimes, right? Even in the church or Christian books or terrible Christian songs are written around this this idea. God's waiting for you. Don't worry. He's He's kind of waiting for you to get your life together. He'll be there when you're ready to receive him. But that's not what this says. We're to wait for him to move. Which means he does everything. We do nothing. We're the ones waiting. We're in the passive place when it comes to salvation, right? In verse five, what does it say? It says, for through the Spirit, by faith, we we ourselves eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness. That's the, the, the hope of being right before God that we have now in Christ but will have in that final day when he comes back. We're waiting for God's timeline, his power, his offer of peace, him to say we're accepted, and we are, we're made favorable because of what Jesus did for us. He's cleansed us. This is what God's will is. He wants us to know these things. Because it's for freedom Christ has set us free. Free news for sinners, but crushing news for arrogant religious people. Which is why here he says, if... If we add laws to Jesus, the offense of the cross is removed. When you add human effort to the gospel, the offense of that cross is taken away. So that's why he says here, why am I being persecuted? That if, I'm, if I'm starting to preach circumcision, like these false teachers are in your church, he's saying, if I'm starting to preach the law, then why am I being persecuted? So the flip of that is to say, those who preach the gospel will be persecuted. Those who are flattering with our messages to say that you can do it and here's a laundry list of things that you're able to do good things to kind of change society, but that's it. Jesus becomes less needed, and that's not really an offensive, offensive message. Everyone wants to do good, basically, or at least hear that you're able, right? I mean, that's, that's a posit, positive, yeah, well, I was going to say positive and encouraging, but I know, what I'm, I know what I'm getting at there, but whatever. I don't I mean to say that. You, if you know what I'm talking about, you know what I'm talking about, but I don't mean to say that. But it's not just positive and encouraging. It's not, you know, it, it's, it's very lowering and then exalting, you know? it's We can't be freed till we know that we're in prison. And, and so the offense of the cross is removed, and the offense of the cross is you can't do it. You're dead. All the good you've ever done in your life doesn't count. That's pretty offensive, right? All the good you've ever done in your life, apart from Christ, doesn't count. Because what counts faith working through love. Are works mentioned there? What counts? Faith and works? No. Faith working through love. And you can say wasn't well, love a work? Well, we'll talk about that. We'll get there. But faith working through love. That's it. You know, it, even if I, you know, if I were to say to you guys right now, and I say this every week, so uh, it's not just a hypothetical thing. But if I say you guys need all of you and me, we need to come to the cross right now to be washed and forgiven. That's the gospel. Like, if you think in that moment, didn't we do this last week? How is that different from saying, I don't need him again, do I? And then how is that different from what the Galatians are going through? If we ever think, yeah, I've already done that, how is that different from saying, I don't need him again at this point in my life in that fashion, do I? And then how is that different from exactly what the Galatians are going through here in the first century? And, and, the, and the answer is it's not different. See, even, even the thought, right, that can be offensive to hear, for Christians, I mean, those of you who are Christians in the room, to hear, you need him again. Not that you've kind of lost your salvation throughout the week or anything, but you need him again. Today, I do, every week, every day. If the thought is, really? How is that not a works-based way of thinking? Because you've moved on. In your mind, you've moved on. Not as beautiful as he was last week. Not as needed. Not as powerful. You see how easy it is to get there? It's like breathing. It's that easy. This is why we do this. This is why it needs to be fresh sometimes for some of us all of us at some point, freshly problematic. Freshly tripping up in our self-perceived self-righteousness so that we might see Jesus' death alone as God's offering of peace and not what we have to give him. All right, but then he says this. But don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, but to love. We'll talk more about this in the coming weeks. The last part of the letter, talks a bit more about love, particularly. I'll talk about it a little more of a big picture way today and give some commentary on it and some challenge. But um, again, more in coming weeks. But but remember, we've we've already talked about this idea once in the series because one could say at this point, if it's all about grace, why do anything at all? Right? Logically, that's kind of where you go. And the Bible itself goes there about these things. In Romans 6, it talks about it. You know, it says, why can't we just sin so that God's grace might get bigger and abound over it and just forgive me? Why can't I allow God's grace to get bigger by just sinning whenever I want? Ah, airtight logic, right? But Paul says, you know, actually in the um, context he says, uh, the, the Greek is meganoito. It's, it's, uh, it's uh, absolutely not. Yeah, that's not the point. Actually, in the, the cotton patch version of the Bible, it says, hell no. You know, so that's actually a version, by the way, too, so. Hell no, that's not the point. That's that's terrible, it's like an abusive, misguided, selfish, harmful understanding of the implications of the gospel, and it's a clear sign that it hasn't impacted the heart. So I'm not going to look at Romans 6, but I just want to look at here what he says, which is basically this. He says, don't use your freedom as an opportunity to sin, but as an opportunity to love and to serve one another. What counts it is, is faith working through love. You know, this, this would be, a, 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 just to qualify this for a second, a great chance for Paul to say, don't use your freedom to sin, but instead keep the Ten Commandments. But he doesn't. He simply says, love. The law pointed to it, and he quotes that here, all the law is fulfilled by it, so that it's all by, by grace but that's what counts now uh, for the Christian. Love, however, is extremely important for the Christian life, extremely important. Uh, Martin Luther says, in light of this idea, God doesn't need your good works, but our neighbors do. God does not need your good works, but but your neighbors do. This is is a really helpful, uh, quippy commentary on how we view good works in the Christian life. They're not for God. Not to save ourselves, but they are expressions of Jesus' love to a lost world. And and real tangible signs of grace and hope for a new earth. They they are those things. And so they're extremely important. But they're for others, not for God, in in the sense that he has to say here. But love is very central, uh, more than really anything else in the New Testament ethically. When you read out the New Testament letters, move from the gospel of Jesus Christ to different types of ethical commands and encouragements, we see that there is this progression, this general one, from gospel to love. You could call it the main New Testament Christian ethic. I already did, I think, but you could call it that. The main New Testament Christian ethic is love as God first loved us. Really important qualification. Love as God first loved us. Jesus talks this way in John 13. Right before he dies, this is at the John's version of the Last Supper, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. So again, the way he talks here is really interesting and important to note, kind of what he doesn't say. You know, being under, to go back to law for a second, being under an Old Testament conditional command to love, kind of a love or else, type way of thinking, religiously, and now being under an in Christ's love idea, or the opportunity we have to express his love by grace, are very, very different. This is why Jesus says here, when talking about love, he doesn't quote the old commandments. Isn't that fascinating? It's striking and kind of problematic, in one sense. Why doesn't he here say, I'm quoting an old command"? Because we're not under them anymore. And Jesus changes the whole thing. He's giving brand new ones. This command was not in the Old Testament. The new one wrapped up with him and what he has to give us. You know, hours from now, he's going to bleed on a cross among criminals unjustly, but in love for us to save us from hell and to bring us to God. He's saying that's love. And now... That saves you. That's the essence of the New Testament. Now live in light of that. Show it off. Make it famous. Put it on center stage. Love others as I first loved, loved you. It's a new command. And Ephesians 2 talks this way as well. Walk and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, referring to his death a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So it's a very specific kind of love. John 15, 13 as well, Jesus says, the greatest kind of love is sacrificial. And so he's looking ahead to his death too, and so there's different kinds of love. The best kind of sacrificial, this hits on it too. But note the connections. You could argue from these verses, and there are many others too we could look at, but you could argue from these verses that love does not come from the law. You can't just command unloving, sinfully dead people who are creatures and not the creator to love. The commands looked ahead to Jesus, but he is love now. He showed us his love. He saved us with his love. And now his love becomes his perfect model and empowerment, model to image, but empowerment to live by. compels us. Love breeds love. And Jesus is the premier example of this. It happens in, in your families and with your friends probably all the time, maybe without you realizing it. When you're loved you're more likely to pay that forward. When you're loved by someone, you're more likely to reciprocate that. I mean, actually loved, actually forgiven, actually served, actually died for. You're more likely to be changed by that, right? But something the Old Testament is more foreign to. So the commands looked ahead to Christ, but now when Christ talks about this new way, he's saying, no, first it's about me loving you. It's not about you loving me. It's about me loving you through my death and resurrection. Then it's about my spirit coming into you to allowing that love to flow through you to others. So it's not a condition like it was before, right? It's unconditional love. Saying, believe in this love and be changed by it and point to it. And again make it make it famous. So let me go back to this idea for, for a second here, uh, again, to teach through this, because some of you have asked about this, and please keep asking, because you're asking great questions uh, in, in and along these lines. But it, the, the principle of grace over works, we can really go to one of two places here. We can go to the place of, well, why do anything? A place of laziness or apathy or boredom with the idea of that principle. We can twist grace into flattery and to being licensed to sin. There's no life change. It's possibly, it's it's a sign that maybe people who are there actually aren't Christians at all. Or we can let that principle drive us to more of Jesus. That's the point. To thanksgiving and to worship and to joy and to waiting on him and to wanting to know more about the gospel, which then leads us to love in a way the law could not produce. Those are very distinct things. And, and there's probably other camps, too. Like, someone could just uh, obviously outright reject the principle, too. So, I mean, there's other camps. But, I mean, ultimately, if you kind of accept the idea and like the idea, you can go to one or two places. And some of you possibly throughout this series have only gone to the left side. Maybe you haven't seen that the point is actually Jesus. The principle of grace over works doesn't save you. Jesus saves you. The idea of God's grace should, in God loving us to the point of death on the cross, should make us want more of Jesus. And the idea of it not being about work should make us try less and run to him or, or both at the same time. But whatever the case, it's supposed to get us to more of him so he becomes more beautiful. But that takes work. That takes faith. That takes intention. That takes community. That takes repentance. Some of you have gotten to this right side and Galatians is sweet to you. Some of you, maybe like me, most of us, we kind of bounce between both. And that's okay. Okay. You know, Paul's not calling his people unsaved here. He actually says in this passage, I'm confident that you'll accept the right view because I know you're truly saved. So I know this false teaching won't ultimately sink in. But let me be the means by which God saves you from it. And so he writes. Huge questions, though, to consider here. Just a few things to leave us with. um, Huge questions. In light of all of this, Do I believe in a gospel that truly is enough? Is my gospel Jesus' death and resurrection alone or are works added? And then think with with his language, what advantages me spiritually every day? Is it what I do? Does that advantage me? Or is it Christ every day? This is an invitation to Jesus. Not just to an idea of the principle again, but, but to Christ. And so the second thing then is, again, Does the message, saved by grace, not by works, move me to laziness or to desiring more of Christ? Is it just an idea or a reality that you're walking in every day? Again, I think the problem sometimes is that people can think that they're believing the gospel when they believe in the principle of grace over works, but you're not. If you think you're a Christian just because you believe in that principle... Well, demons believe in the principle. Non-Christians can, can ascribe or assent to the principle. Christians see, see the Christ in the principle. because so we're saved by Jesus, right? Not by the principle itself, but the grace of Christ and not our works. And so when we believe the gospel, when we trust in Jesus, knowing that it's by his grace. That's when we're saved every day. So it's a call this to believe, which is it? And then third here, does the gospel compel us to love others as I've first been loved? Again, the, the law cannot cause you to love. Uh, that's partly why, you know, Paul's writing the way that he is. He wants love. You know, that's why we preach the gospel here all the time. We want a loving church. But the way to get that is not tell you to love others, and that's it. That, that never works. You know, the, the, because the higher you think of yourself, the harder it is to love, Right? The gospel helps us to have a low view of ourselves and a high view of Jesus who still loved us even though we were his enemies unto death, to hell and back. Religion though which bolsters the human spirit says you are the center which is the opposite of love. Love says it's not about me. So the law will bolster you and you will not be able to love. Think of the people who were very law filled and religious and good externally in Jesus' day, the Pharisees or religious, kind of pastor-type people who are full of themselves, they were not loving. The law does not breed love. God breeds love. The gospel breeds love. Freedom breeds love. The only way to become loving is to be wrecked by the fact that we've been loved unto to death and back by the king of the universe and to really believe it, to see that love, to drink it in, to inhale it, to eat it in communion, to sing it with the church, to read that theme in every word of the Bible, whether it's looked ahead to or whether it's explicit, and to be free to love. And, and that, that's the tension of Christian theology. And we'll talk more about this in the coming weeks, but I mean, another way to say all of this, this is what I call the Pauline Paradox sometimes, is it's like basically what Galatians is saying is, uh, is believe with all of your might, That it's by grace and not works. Let that drive you to Jesus and have faith in him. Then try with all your might to love others. You know, or basically, um, be good because you don't have to be good. Great, thanks Paul, helpful, you know. Be good because you don't have to be. Jesus said it's finished on the cross. So what else is there to do? I guess believe in it, believe in him, trust in him. And just go love some people. Be free in that. But don't acquiesce with love. Uh, 1 John, great example of how if we're not impacted by the love of the cross, if it's not moving through us to love other Christians especially, it brings into serious questions as, really, as to whether we're really saved or not. That, that's kind of what he's getting at here. What counts? Faith working through love. The love of God for us that flows that flows through us. So breathe in a free air of grace, you guys, this week. It's not about you, but just go and love someone at Hiawatha sacrificially. It's what you were made for, saved for, and spirit indwelt for. Let me pray. God, thank you for today, for your grace.